I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out and one dropped off But I Hello and welcome to this Gunts Quartz episode of Seeking Tumness, the podcast where 300% of our profits go to the Underprivileged Children's Literacy Foundation, who unfortunately won't pay the bill and no longer respond to any of our calls. On this podcast, we usually read and discuss young adult fiction from our youth to see whether they have improved over time, like Nicole Kidnam, or whether the hands of time have delivered a knockout blow, like David Hasselhoff. Did you call her Nicole Kidnam? I did. I totally did. Was that deliberate? It was. <laughs> As a okay. throwback. Classy maneuver. <laughs> I don't remember it at all. <laughs> I think it's twice that Laurie's referred to her in that way. I would never refer to an Australian icon with the incorrect pronunciation. <laughs> Where do you even get Kidnam from, though? Like, it's actually hard to say. On alternate episodes, we cast our judgmental glare at more contemporary fare. In this exceptionally alternate episode, we're taking a tangential approach and instead talking about a film that's based on contemporary young adult fiction. My name is Keith, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the never-too-soon-for-an-opportune swoon, Patrick Moon. Hi! Is the never-too-soon-for-an-inopportune swoon because he does strange things to a random baboon? Or what? (laughs) He may do. What a loon. Am I the one that's swooning in an opportune in opportune fashion, or are people swooning inopportunely because of me? Well, that's a point for discussion, isn't it? The handles or topics with compassion and empathy. Just make sure not to disagree. Delightfully, Bree. Oh, thanks. For a minute, I thought it was going to be Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> and the man to eviscerate the boilerplate, the vocal heavyweight, Laurie Bate. G'day! I feel like you should be uh, doing these introductions in a wrestling ring type fashion. I could have actually. Glow. Glorious ladies of wrestling style. I'm the overweight champion of the world! (laughs) (laughs) Let it not be said that we don't give the people what they want, for it was the people who wanted, nay demanded, that we opine a four-year-old film based on a 12-year-old book about a time almost 80 years ago, and who, quite frankly, can blame them? Not me. And so, with great eagerness, in but a few moments, us, the folks at this award-coveting podcast, will be talking about the award-winning 2013 film The Book Thief, based on the award-winning 2005 book of the same name by Australian author Marcus Zusak. But before we get into things, a warning. Erstmost, and of most import, we've already read, reviewed, and raved about the book in the episode immediately prior to this one. Our recommended order of consumption is, as always, read the flippin' book first. If you watch the movie first, you run the risk of being a dodgy human being like my two co-hosts, who claimed the 13 reasons why television show was more enjoyable than the book. I stand by that. I absolutely stand by that statement. I think only Pat was like that. I think I had them pretty much neck and neck. 
This is a disgraceful and unenviable position. I would wish upon no one. <laughs> is it that bad to be like me? <laughs> Think about it, listeners. <laughs> You're really taking this role and running with it. I like it. <laughs> Having read the book, listen ye, if ye dare, to the previous episode where we spoil the book completely. And if the gods or our blathering haven't struck you deaf and blind by then, you could nip off and grab the movie, which is going for around 10 squids on Blu-ray at the moment, before finally rejoining us on this very episode where we'll taunt you a second time. (laughs) We'll obviously be discussing the movie... So what wasn't spoiled last episode will definitely be spoiled in this. You have been warned! Thanks, Laurie. Patrick, can you hit us with a brief synopsis? So the book thief, the film, and if you've listened to the episode last week, this is going to be staggeringly familiar to you, is based on the beloved best-selling book. It's an extremely moving story, quote-unquote, from the uh, the back of the Blu-ray, of a girl who transforms the lives of those around her during World War II in Germany. When her mother can no longer care for her, Liesl is adopted by a German couple. Although she arrives illiterate, Liesl is encouraged to learn to read by her adoptive father. When the couple then takes in Max, a Jew hiding from Hitler's army, Liesl befriends him. Ultimately, words and imagination provide the friends with an escape from the events unfolding around them in this extraordinary acclaimed film directed by Brian Percival of Downton Abbey fame. I feel like that is such a staid unemotional kind of synopsis for a film that is, well, for a a story that is anything but. But I guess that's what you get when you take your kicks from the back of a Blu-ray box. (laughs) The synopsis on IMDb was even more devoid of emotion than that. While subjected to the horrors of World War II Germany, young Liesel finds solace by stealing books and sharing them with others. In the basement of her home, a Jewish refugee is being protected by her adoptive parents. The end. Gosh. I feel like the, the book thief element is notably absent from the back of the Blu-ray. Yes. Anyway. Thanks for that. Bree, you had something to say about the movie. Come to the front of the classroom and <laughs> make your excuses. Mm, I couldn't watch all of this movie. I didn't actually prepare for this question particularly well, <laughs> if at all. I had a really, really intense reaction to the opening scene and had to walk out. The scene in which Liesl's brother dies is what you're referring to? Yes. For me, it was watching the mother on the train with her daughter beside her or opposite her holding this very sick, small boy that looked roughly three or four with kind of floppy hair, much like my own son's hair. And having read the book, and being able to separate myself enough from it, I couldn't. I physically couldn't watch that particular scene. And I'm getting emotional thinking about it again. Do you think 10 years ago you would have had the same reaction to that scene? Absolutely not. There is no chance. The bits that I did watch and managed to watch, I don't think it was as good as the book, so I hope everybody reads the book. <laughs> yeah, None of you that, felt Barry. that strongly? I'll get into that a bit later. Well, I can answer the question right now, and no, and and I won't be getting it back into it later because I, I have nothing further to say about it. Just no, no, <laughs> me either. I think there was a minor welling of one eye at one point, but uh, certainly not the weeping. Their family dynamic is roughly the same as mine, right? There's an older daughter, a younger son. Just watching the dynamic of that family have to break was just too much. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it can be really moving when something connects with you so directly, but it's not always a positive thing. I could separate it out in the book, though, from the movie. It was an entirely different reaction. Yeah, that is interesting because for me, the the book just nailed the emotional side of things so much better than the movie did. Mm. But if you're starting on that foot with the opening scene of the movie, then it's perfectly understandable. There's also that repeat effect. I'm currently going through watching very, very similar topics, watching The Office. (laughs) (laughs) And when I get to a bit where I know that Jim is about to do something romantic with Pam and or she's going to realise for the first time that he loves her or something like that because I've seen it before, whereas you read it before and you know it's coming, it might intensify the emotions because you've got time to prepare for it. Yeah, I've shed so many tears watching The Office, which is quite embarrassing. Pam and Jim, I swear, is the greatest love story ever told. Could well be. <laughs> but it's also the imagery and the music. So there's always other things in a cinematic experience that you don't get in a book the book you obviously have your own imagination to sort of carry you and you have your own images and my Liesl certainly doesn't look the same as yours although all of our Liesls may look the same now that we've seen the movie true I don't know if this outs me as someone who doesn't belong in this podcast but I actually find that movies have more of an acute emotional punch I think books are better for the depth and the overall relationship that you feel with characters but I find that they don't quite hit me as hard as a movie does just in the moment on that minute by minute second by second sort of basis I can walk out of a movie and practically need to be supported held up by the people on either side of me as I weep and wail and gnash and beat my breasts as I walk from the cinema but I don't really get that experience from books typically Remind me not to go to the cinema with you and Brie. <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> All of my re- friends regret seeing Spider-Man with me that time. <laughs> oh, dear. It's so true, though. Like A book, you can control the pace and you can duck out if things are getting a little overwhelming, whereas with a movie, you really need to be in that moment. And the music in particular, like Brie said, really carries it through. I think the strongest reaction that I can recall in recent times for me was just a a few weeks back when I watched Big Little Lies, that closing episode really got me. Thanks for those thoughts, Brie. I thought we'd give a quick breakdown of the technical aspects of the film first. So, Laurie, can you get us started on actors and casting? Yeah, for sure. Jeffrey Rush is first on my list. He played Papa. And I thought he was pretty good. He was warm to Liesl, pretty good with his man tears at one point, great eye rolls for Mama, and winks when his wife was really giving it to him, winks to Liesl, that is. I think he was made shallower, though, by the trimming down of the plot. I'm on board with that completely. Sophie Nellis, who played Liesl, I thought she had a great accent. I think the accent might have been a bit inconsistent at times. The Australian crept in periodically, I think. Oh, the, was she whatever Australian? It was. No. She's Canadian, she's Canadian, sorry. It was actually amazing watching the, the video extras. Like one of the extras on the Blu-ray was interviews with everybody. And she had such an annoying, almost typical American rather than Canadian, I thought, kind of accent. So given that I saw that, I felt her German accent was... Pretty admirable. Pretty good. Yeah, exactly. A good, darn good effort. She goes from, oh, yeah, the casting director saw me out on the ice when I was playing some hockey, eh? And he said, hey, you want to be in a movie? (laughs) Yeah, I think she was a little more California than that. (laughs) 
even though she's Canadian. Yeah, she was only like 12 or 13 at the time of filming. She had a gravity about her, which we sometimes don't see with child actors, but I saw an interview with her as well, and she didn't have that in the interview, so either she's a fantastic actor or they just managed to cut it up nicely. I was a little let down by her big doe-eyed stare. I thought a little bit more fierceness and expressiveness of voice would have done wonders for her, but, I mean, she was generally very passable. And apparently she was Zuzak's first choice, having seen her in some other movie of hers prior to casting. He actually asked for her, and so it was. Emily Watson as Mama. I thought she was quite a good dour old Mama. There's two fun facts about her. Did you just say her name is Emily Watson? Well, that's one of the fun facts. I could have sworn that I saw the name Emma Watson associated with this film. And the whole time that I was like allegedly watching. Here goes my fun fact. I kept expecting (laughs) Hermione to pop out of the corner somewhere. And I'd be like, ah, there we go. There she is. But then the further it got into it, the less of a role. I was trying to wonder. I was like, what role is she going to play? So two fun facts about this actor. (laughs) One. Well, Laurie, before you say that, I have. <laughs> <laughs> she stayed in character between takes and apparently got in trouble at the airport when she acted like a real arschlock to the staff. <laughs> <laughs> Which might just be an actor's excuse, I think. I was in character. <laughs> <laughs> Even Daniel Day Lewis surely steps out of character to get through the screening at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> The other is that Sophie Nelise was super excited to be acting with Hermione before her mum explains that Emily Watson and Emma Watson were not one and the same. (laughs) Did she think Emma Watson was going to be her mother in the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Ben Schnetzer as Max Vanderberg. I was mostly on the fence about Max. The actor certainly didn't do a bad job. And I really got a sense of that artistic, philosophical Max. But I think a lot of the gravity of Max's situation was made fuller, in the book I mean, was made fuller by the macro-level atrocities and perhaps by the dead of Papa, which was a bit glossed over. So was neither here nor there with Ben Schnetzer. Rudy. I loved Rudy, played by Nico, oh gosh, Leisch. I just loved his earnestness, his Germanness, and he just seemed like a sweet kid. I don't think we got enough of his side plots and I wasn't as sad as I thought I'd be by the end. They maybe had him kicking balls a bit too much, but I enjoyed his acting very much. Yeah, I think overall they did a really good job with the casting and the actors did what they could with what they had to work with. The score was by John Williams, who everyone should be familiar with if they're not the composer behind Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., Schindler's List, to name a few. Pat, what did you think of the score? I can't say anything about the score. (laughs) I found it completely unmemorable in every way. It hasn't stuck with me whatsoever. And I don't know if any of you disagree, but it it certainly didn't strike me as particularly memorable. But then I have to say, not a lot of the movie did. It was ever present and it was polished and effective, but I had the same kind of takeaway as you that it wasn't memorable and it was warm and it was gentle, but it didn't pump things up or bring you down. It was just there and it didn't feature as strongly as you'd think from someone like John Williams. Yeah, it wasn't going to be nominated for any Academy Awards, that's for sure. 
Except that it was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the score was. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but come on. Oh, really? How many options would they have had? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Not that I want to diminish the great work of film composers the world over. Sometimes you see a movie and the score, it just takes centre stage and it didn't in this. No. I don't remember it at all. Hmm. It was passable. It was suitable. But there were, I remember, one or two jaunty, flighty pieces that I thought, this is going to really insult one of my favourite composers of all time, but I thought it sounded a little bit daytime movie-ish. Just sort of, you know, those sort of (laughs) tweety, light, kind of funny kids having quirky fun tunes, and they were not as impressive as the rest of the score. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I think it suited the film's pace mostly. It's no Stranger Things. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the hair. Forget the music. Yeah, onto the cinematography. The opening scene for me was beautifully framed and shot, and it perfectly matched this score at that stage. Brie found it a little blurry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it set up the movie really nicely, and the cinematography throughout was pretty beautiful, although it was visually stunning. I didn't think it actually was completely in sync with the content of the film. It was a bit too polished and a bit too nice. It didn't give you that gritty feeling that I felt you should have had or that I got from the book. I thought both the cinematography and the lighting were excellent. I thought much to the film had those wintry days or interiors or nighttime shots. And in all of those cases, the lighting was excellent. I didn't struggle to see anything, nor did I feel it was over bright and false. But you are right. Like, I think it was more to do with maybe costuming or setting or something rather than cinematography or lighting. But it just didn't feel gritty enough. They didn't feel poor and hungry enough. Maybe the characters weren't dirty enough and skinny enough. Um, I feel like I've said that before. Not half dead enough. enough. That's just awful. What movie was that? What was it? Fault in Our Stars? Yeah, maybe. She didn't look half dead enough. Yeah, you're right. Mm. Pat? Again, I found so much of the movie a little bit workmanlike, but not mm. because I don't think the individual components weren't well done, but it just didn't have a lot of the, the soul behind it that I thought the book had. And I think that has coloured my perspective on so many of these things. I don't really feel particularly one way or the other about the look and, and feel and, and sound of the movie. It just, I, I kind of slogged my way through it as best I could. And that's about all I have to say about it, really. But no doubt you've got a lot to say about the special effects, Pat, because there was (laughs) so few. (laughs) (laughs) It was a pretty film, by and large. They didn't dwell on some of the things that I would have liked them to include a bit more. I thought the character of death and the features of the war were really important parts of the book, and they weren't really that present in the film. Well, death was barely present at all, and I guess that's maybe one of the parts where I should have commented in the actor's casting component. But I felt that was a potentially good opportunity to, you know, throw in some of those special effects or something to to actually use the the magic of cinema to make some of these characters come alive to bring it out of the mundane a little bit more. But what I found basically was that it was a very reality rooted movie. It felt firmly based. In Germany, in the war, they achieved their goals to that end in their use of special effects and whatever, but it had none of the magic such as it was from the book, which I think they could have done better somehow. What do you guys think? 
It was a pretty tight budget. It was 19 million US, which is for a film these days and a film of this potential scale. It's not a lot. No, it's not. And I think they spent a lot of that on the streetscape, which they then destroyed for the later scenes in the movie. Mm. So that probably would have blown a lot of the budget there. So there wasn't much in the way of special effects. So it probably doesn't really bear talking too much about that. I think they were almost non-existent except for the bombs and they were a wee bit dodgy. The scene where Papa's truck gets blown up was brief and unexciting. It was. It was back lot shot. Yeah, it was a perfect opportunity to really roll out the Hollywood budget. It sounds like maybe they were down to 72 cents or so by that point and just had to do their best. <laughs> what do you call the Matrix-style shot where you have like 37 cameras all around in a circle? They certainly didn't have that. <laughs> the truck just went, no. done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he's walking up on a crutch and you're like, oh, there you go. Flash <laughs> yeah. forward. Yeah, the budget kept things restricted in that sense. Given that, though, it did a ride at the box office. It was almost $80 million, four times what it cost to make, which is pretty good. Two-thirds of that foreign. Screenplay and direction. It was adapted by Michael Petroni. That would have been a very difficult task. It's a big book. It's a massive book. And when the movie was eventually paired up with the director, who didn't want death to feature heavily, it changes things completely. It just changes the whole tone of the book. Did he have a point of wanting to minimise Death's involvement? Basically, yeah, he didn't want Death to be too prominent a character in the movie because he felt it took away from the human characters. I completely understand where he's coming from with that point, but also I think maybe don't use a book where Death is the actual narrator <laughs> for the whole thing. Exactly right. That's one of the features that made the book what it was, Yeah, was it was coming from that perspective. Every single word in the novel was narrated by death. And so then to say, you know what, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to cut out the role of the narrator in this entire text for the movie seems like a dumb decision to me with yep. the greatest of respect to the filmmaker. <laughs> Not just the fact that he was absent, but if you make him absent, then you also rob the viewers of that zoomed out perspective. Yeah. So you don't have death talking about the broader war and the atrocities going on in gas chambers and whatnot. So you really shed a lot of weight. And I think relative to the book, plot lines were pretty gaunt. Yeah. That's a really good point about that macro view of the war that you get from death's perspective that was really one of the most touching components of the books in, in the book in my reading of it was the juxtaposition between the things that death is talking about and the things that are going on on this little street a tiny fraction of germany of people going about their ordinary lives against this broader crazy context of war and death and destruction and hate and murder and genocide when death is talking about really casually taking whatever he, at some points you're saying i i took twenty thousand souls into my hands that night or something along those lines and then he's zooming back down to liesel lying in her bed with a jew sheltered in the basement that's powerful that's really powerful mm. And whilst the human story is powerful in itself, I think you lose some of the impact and some of the stuff that was made very special about the book by focusing on that exclusively. To be frank, there are a lot of good wartime stories out there. It has been done to death. There are hundreds and thousands of them. And The Book Thief, as it is as a book, is quite a unique 
wartime story and a really beautiful different wartime story and i feel like the error that they made was that they made it into sort of just another wartime story like all the others they took away what was special yeah completely agree do you want to move us on to adaptation and your summary on the movie Laurie? Yeah, I guess book adaptations are never going to cover enough ground. And there's a few points in here that I think we just discussed, so I'll skip over those. But one thing I will just mention, Pat, is that it's not just the comparison of the macro level against this small town, but I also found if you're looking at all those atrocities and and how so many German soldiers and politicians and generals or whoever are basically perpetrating these crimes, it makes it even more brave maybe stupid but certainly brave of papa he is unable to help himself in trying to yeah help not just one man but you see Liesl trying to help and rudy at one point with the bread yeah in the face of so much horror and so much potential to get in trouble themselves their actions become even more special and obviously not much of that really reflected in the movie mm. i think rudy and Liesl didn't get enough time together Rudy's athleticism and the threat of the Nazi camp felt a bit tacked on and didn't really lead to any emotional payoff. It was much more effective in the book. I agree with that so strongly because the Jesse Owens element of Rudy's subplot was one of the really beautiful parts of the book. This hero worship of a young boy in Nazi Germany for a black athlete was just so nice and I found it quite emotional at times when they're describing him in in all his innocence going to the oval and putting on his black face and running that race it just didn't feel the same in the movie and i I think it was because there just wasn't enough time it felt like a, a skeleton of the plot in the book even though they made an attempt to flesh out that element of the story and that it was still there it just didn't have the heart that the book had which was unfortunate. It felt a little bit cheap as well. Like when Rudy says oh, something like, why can't I love a black person or why can't I want a black person as my hero or something like that? And the father almost looks at the camera and says, why not? It brings out a trombone and goes, wah, wah, wah. Yeah, like it was just <laughs> preachy in a very cheap kind of way. Yeah. Whereas it was so genuine and beautiful in the book, we were robbed, robbed. Yeah. Papa's conscription lasted for about three minutes. <laughs> and the Burgermeister's wife, she was just a paper-thin vehicle for book distribution in the movie. Yeah. Rather than a peek at a complex, grieving mother that added something to the story. That's one thing I remarked about the book in the previous episode, that every character really added something. And in this one, she was just, uh, here's a book. Here's another book. Oh, my son died. Here's a book. <laughs> Death's voice, we've covered this a bit, but Death's voice was fleeting and really sorely missed, as were those zoomed-out looks at the war and the atrocities. Having cleaved so much away, it lacked punch, lacked the weight that made the book a classic. We ended up with a well-shot, reasonably acted, but mostly unsatisfying movie, I thought. If you really hate reading, I'm glad you're listening to us, though I'm not sure why you are. (laughs) This is a podcast for masochists who don't like reading. (laughs) Yeah, Pat's voice is dreamy, so I can understand why you come back. But if you hate reading, then you're bound to get a tear or two squeezed from your square eyes, but it won't change your life. Right. Pat, anything you want to add in your summary? 
I think Laurie summed it up really well and conveyed most of my thoughts. Basically, it was workmanlike. Mm. The actors did a pretty good job with what they were given, but the beating heart wasn't quite in this movie. What about you, Keith? For me, the film was at once enhanced and overshadowed by the book, completely overshadowed by the book. My first question about the adaptation was how they'd weave death in. We've talked about this a bit. It opened with the narrative... Uh, the narration story from death and it gave the impression that he'd be as present in the movie as he was in the book but by the end of the film the narration was essentially gone and it felt tacked on so rather than being the binding fabric that it was throughout the book it was there at the start and at the end it felt merely like an attempt to appease readers of the book and it didn't do a very good job of that i fantasize about a movie based on this book where you actually integrate death as a character yeah it would be so much more interesting. You know what? It would be a much better TV series played out across maybe six episodes, something like that, where they can yeah. spend the time on the characters and keep that narration throughout. Much like they did with 13 Reasons Why. Not. Yes. Not. <laughs> well, <laughs> not. yes. But anyway, we're going to talk about that later, Bree. Because <laughs> mm. there's some different opinions about that. Mm. I've got that quote from Brian Percival. It's to have death as a constant presence in the film almost took us out of the lives of the real people. It sort of formed a barrier that we were going through death to get to where we needed to be. And like Pat, I can see where he's coming from, but the problem here is that if you're taking a book that is so well-loved, you have to try to recreate the reasons why that book is so well-loved and why it broke through in what is such a crowded area of writing. The book was really lengthy, obviously, and it worked hard and tirelessly to establish a great tapestry of characters and to go through the hardships that they've faced in such a difficult time and place. In the movie, obviously, they don't have anywhere near the same opportunity, but I thought of what they were able to include, they weren't very effective. It was almost like it relied on outside knowledge of the circumstances to enhance the emotions involved. Like, if you didn't know anything about World War II, it didn't have the punch, it didn't have the feeling, there was no desperation about the characters... It didn't feel that they were doing it so tough, as was the case in the book. And I don't know whether that was from the budget and the rating, because it's a PG-13 rated movie, and some of the violence and the more confronting scenes in the book, were they to be put on the screen, would never get that rating. So I don't know whether that played into it. Ultimately, what it resulted in was a movie that felt so muted and just inauthentic compared to the book. There was an unnecessary elegance about the film that, for me, betrayed the message. And the book was, of course, not without beauty and elegance, far from it, but it provided more context and contrast for those moments. So I didn't hate the movie, but it sure felt like they could have done a much better job of recapturing the magic of the book, particularly given what was a pretty good cast. I'll move right on to scoring. Before you do, Bree, do you have anything you want to add in addition to what you've already said about the movie? Or I kind of agree with you. I don't think that I'm very well positioned, not having seen the end, to actually comment on how it all may or may not have come together. It seemed cheaply made. It's almost like if they only had $19 million, you should only do it with five and do it in a true indie style. <laughs> Does that make sense or is that really harsh? I can imagine how well that would have been received though. <laughs> <laughs> But if you did it with that budget and people that were passionate about the book, I think you might have got closer to where we wanted to be. Mm. But you may not have made $80 million, right? No. I mean, you're trying to adapt it to make money, to make a decent enough film to make money, I guess. Did it win any awards? 
Yeah, John Williams won a Grammy for the score. A Grammy, right. So that's not actually <laughs> like an Academy Award or something, or a BAFTA or a... He was nominated. But would you put your Grammy for this movie at the top of your cabinet? Well, when you're John Williams, you've got 23 Grammys, so I don't think it's even going in the cabinet. No, so I think the other 22 are way up the top there. Anyway, yeah, it was okay. But get that small blonde child with the floppy hair and the older sister looking after him and being all upset about it away from me. <laughs> So let's score this uh, on the back of those lovely reviews. What better way to score an adaptation than with other adaptations? Was this one, Fifty Shades of Grey? Was it two, The Golden Compass? A reasonable start to the movie, but ultimately stripped of the most redeeming features of the book by mysterious meddling higher powers. Was it three, The Hunger Games? Reasonable, but dumbed down and not a patch on the book. Was it four? The Shining, a really good movie, but not exactly faithful to the source material. Or was it five? Harry Potter. Yeah, okay, it's not as good as the book, but it's still phenomenally good, all things considered. Who would like to score? I, I will go first. I think I'll give it a two in that it was sort of entertaining for what it was, but I don't think I would particularly enjoy it if I hadn't read the book, and I certainly didn't really enjoy it having read the book. What about you, Laurie? Yeah, I think there were some good bits. I like. I think the cinematography was great, but it just didn't come together. It lacked the heart, and I would also give it a two. Yeah, same sentiment from me, but I'll slide it up to a three. It was just too pedestrian. All the components were almost there, but nothing nailed it. Overall, it was a real letdown. Do you want to give a provisional score, Bree? It definitely hovers around the two to three for similar reasons. Maybe a one for making me cry. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen the book or read the movie or the other way around even. So <laughs> Maybe that's how you're supposed to do it. It might be more enjoyable that way. <laughs> I've seen the book. I've seen the book in many places. So and it wasn't affronting in that way. And I've read the first line of the movie and decided that was enough. <laughs> So we've already mentioned 13 Reasons, Brie, nicely segued. A bit too early there. Maybe let me know next time. But I wanted to touch on that series. <laughs> it was unintentional. <laughs> because when we last talked about it, both Brie and Laurie, you hadn't finished watching the entire series. And I wanted to find out, well, you're finding it a bit of a chore to get through, is the takeaway I had from the last time we talked about it. And it seems to have pervaded through to the finish of it for you, Bree. Do you want to add anything to your earlier comments? And Laurie, do you have anything to say about the conclusion of 13 Reasons Why? Yeah, the last couple of episodes, it did get better. But the book was still more true to me. They went in some strange directions. Mm. They're obviously just spinning it out to make more money. So they're like, oh, we'll have a season two with a court case. There were a couple of things that I liked, like one of the characters was obviously on a one-way road to suicide himself, and I found that interesting, and obviously I loved Tony Pepperoni the whole time. (laughs) But it was a slog, and I think expanding it to a second season has an impact upon the message or the emotional punch or the power of what was trying to be achieved by the, the 13 Reasons. I'm with you there because the 13 episodes already feels like a bit of a cash grab and then they blow it out and put the hooks in for the second season yeah which ideally I don't want to watch but in reality I'm sure I'll end up at least starting it Pat what do you reckon do you think you'll give it a go as well I will probably watch a little bit of it but I don't like the way they have spun it out I didn't like a lot of the added 
plot points that they threw in. Although I don't know that you can accuse Netflix of cash grabbing by doing 13 episodes when they don't make any more money by having five episodes or nine episodes or 13 episodes other than people spending more time watching their service, I guess. They have drawn it out more than they need to. They've added stuff they didn't need to. How did you feel about the death scene itself, which was very different? I thought it was well done in that it was very confronting. I found it really uncomfortable to watch, Mm. really hard to watch. And in that way, I liked it. I thought it was pretty powerful. And that's without commenting, I guess, on the responsibility of the service. Did they have to change the way that she killed herself so completely to make it much more of a shock factor for visual media or visual consumption as opposed to the written word? I think it made a difference in the way that they portrayed the family relationship, the dynamic, her parents finding her in the in the bath and that kind of thing. I think it did make a visually arresting scene. And whether that's the right call or not, I don't know. But I personally found it pretty tough to watch. And I think if you can do that, then you've succeeded in your goal for that part of the show. And part of the reason I think that I like the series so much more than the book is that I just don't like the book very much. So it's a pretty low bar. (laughs) So it's not that you love the show. It's more that the book was just a, a bit of a letdown. I think the show is very flawed. I'd certainly found it enjoyable, though. I, I liked it more than Brie and Laurie did. But it's not the best thing I've watched on Netflix this year, and it's a long way from it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how anyone, maybe anyone our age, maybe that's the problem, how they could prioritise a season two viewing of that over, say, finishing watching Glow or Rosa or anything good, basically. <laughs> I'll finish watching Glow, if that was a shot at me. (laughs) 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 And Glow was excellent. Can't wait for the second season of that. Yeah, certainly I think stuff like Glow is better and more important viewing probably, but, you know, sometimes you want some junk food. Mm, Well said. While we're talking about other books that we've read that have been turned into movies or TV shows, I did see that A Monster Calls has finally, in Australia at least, been released on Blu-ray. Uh-huh. So I think I might get around to watching that sometime soon. I did ask Bree whether or not she would be interested in watching that with me. And what was your response, Bree? Did you ask me at around about the same time that we'd just watched The Book Thief? I'm pretty sure it was the same day. My answer was no. Yeah, you said something like, <laughs> no, a child being left alone with their parent having died. No, I can't do it. No. So I guess I'll be watching that on my own. Like I said, you asked me at around about Book Thief movie time. <laughs> Sometimes these release date decisions are so baffling and frustrating. Didn't it come out last year in the US? Yeah, it was like a full six months at least, I think, between the US release and the release in Australia. And it was such a muted release here that it didn't really garner any interest. Yeah, I have no idea whether or not it is a good adaptation, but I'll probably get around to giving it a whirl. Maybe I'll update you at the end of one of our normal episodes. I might grab it as well if it's appropriately priced. (laughs) It probably isn't at the moment, but I suspect it's one of those movies that drops off the new release shelf and straight into the $10 bargain ones (laughs) soon enough. (laughs) Not because it's necessarily good or bad, just probably Mm. because it's less well-known. And one more book that's been converted into a movie, there's just been a, a teaser trailer shown for... A Wrinkle in Time, which I haven't watched because I'm terrified of spoilers at all times. That's due, I think, was it March, guys? Yes, March. It did make me wonder whether we needed to hold off reading the book, to be honest. Do them both in one fell swoop. Well, 
as our listeners know, we are a bit sporadic with our releases. So who knows when this episode will be released? Maybe <laughs> out next week in March 2018. <laughs> Thanks for that, Laurie. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, tell a friend or let us know with a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're into books, you probably want to listen to our other episodes rather than this one. But if you've come this far, then good job. <laughs> it's a bit late for you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We have no respect for your time. You might have fallen asleep and woken back up now. You can find us on Twitter at Seeking Tumnus or on Facebook or through our website, SeekingTumnus.com. On our next episode, Patrick dodges Bree's thieving glances, taking us by the hand and leading us headfirst into the stormy science fantasy classic, A Wrinkle in Time, by American author Madeleine Lengel. Until then, if your life feels empty or incomplete and you're absolutely itching for some thievery, Help teach someone how to read and steal a heart instead. Then head to your local library and get yourself a card. It's practically thievery. You don't even have to befriend the spouse of a local politician to get your hands on lots of pretty, pretty books. Und weiterlesen! By American author Madeleine Lengel. She's American and that was her middle name. That's a pronunciation from her granddaughter. Uh-huh. Lengel. So although it is a French name, I think they've Americanized the pronunciation. You can't have an L and an apostrophe and call it an anglicized word. Lengel. <laughs> I know, it's an affront to the eye. But the funny thing with this for me, I don't know whether this is true for others, but if she went with her real name, which is some very American name, I would have been less interested in it because I thought she was a French author based on the name. It, to me, became instantly more quirky based on that fake news fact. Hmm. Mm. Is that based on something like Cities of Gold or...? It's actually French for mm, yum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just French film in general tends to be more on the outer. It's not so mainstream. Uh, this is, I think this is devolving rapidly. It's devolving, yeah. Cut, has cut, a Wrinkle cut. in Time by American author Madeleine Longell. The never too soon for an opportune swoon, Patrick Moon. Hi, how's it going? I, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> <laughs> My computer was buzzing at me at the same time as you were introducing me. <laughs>